this is this is our final episode. Is it? Technically, I guess, of season two, our final normal episode. What podcast is this, Andy? I don't know. I forgot it. <laughs> Suddenly, I don't know. Well, Sam, it's it, it's actually a literature. Uh, the comedy, oh, my God. The comedy literature podcast where two you... comedians uh, <laughs> talk about talk about classic literature. Oh, my God. You mean that podcast that has that Instagram account, a literature underscore podcast? Yeah, <laughs> I hear... Instagram.com. I hear they're actually taking requests, even. Like, if someone were to hypothetically have a book they wanted the, the two comedians to cover, you could actually message them on the Instagram or... Or on their email. No one does email. It's fine. People do. Wait, what if we have an old person? Okay. Young at heart. <laughs> I feel attacked because my boyfriend is like 100. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Edward Cullen. <laughs> when, it's a bit morbid, but at the funeral, we were talking about who is likely to die first. <laughs> at my father's funeral, yeah. if I may add. <laughs> and, and I absolutely made um, Sam's partner f- hate me um and fear me by <laughs> by saying that uh it would be him because he's old <laughs> and then i'm like crying because my father had been laid to rest mm. so, thank you <laughs> yeah we had to entertain ourselves while you were busy crying and and if you want to email um a book suggestion or just your thoughts or or you know your feelings what you could you could email it if you're an emailing person to a literature dot podcast at gmail.com you have to look for that i did have to look for that it's not um, an underscore it's a dot but also maybe we should change that we will never mm-hmm. and i repeat never mm-hmm. do the book the um hill house hill is house based is based on. on we will one day no. Yeah, we won't one day. Because Blind Manor was scary enough. I didn't go to sleep till four that morning. <laughs> really? Like, oh, that is adorable. I was just oh like, my God. But I feel what? <laughs> just thinking about the windows and. I didn't find it that scary when I was reading it. Maybe the way I told. Oh, it. really? You didn't find that scary? <laughs> All right. Is this All one scary? Right. Is no. Mr. Dalloway hot at least? No. Uh, we can make him hot. Let's cast this one. I think it'll be fun to cast this one. Because it's a very character-driven okay. book. Let's so let's, do it. let's start. The Virginia Vuvulf. The Vuvitch. Like the Vuvitch, yeah. Clarissa Dalloway. Clarissa's such a pretty name, in my name opinion. Name your kid that, then. Maybe I will. Classandra. <laughs> Junior. <laughs> so Clarissa Dalloway is an upper-class 52-year-old woman um, who is hosting a party tonight. Uh, and she goes out into 1920s London, having decided to buy the flowers for the party herself. Oh, my God. She's Satan, and she's going to walk past... <laughs> um, what's she's his gonna name? Grant Dorian. <laughs> it's Wednesday, um, and it's almost five years after Armistice Day. I, can't, I don't know exactly that day. I think it might have been 1918, so maybe it's 1923. Why is that an important day? What happened? Armistice, that's when World War II ended. So it's uh, been it's- five years since the end of World War Sorry, not World War Two, World War One. Yeah, it was like nineteen twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the forties were fine. They were enjoyable <laughs> for many people. We're gonna get cancelled. <laughs> yeah. So and the whole book takes place on this single Wednesday with the chimes of Big Ben marking the progress of the day throughout the book. So Virginia Woolf reportedly almost named this book The Hours. 
Yeah, Sam, you have oh, a question? Oh, that was what the movie was called. Yeah, there was a movie. And it was kind of based on Mrs. Dalloway. Because I think Mrs. Dalloway is actually a character in the movie. But it's also about Virginia Woolf's life. That movie. My yeah. initial hand raise was um, mm. uh, the Big Ben thing. It just reminds me of that joke that if you go to like London and you ask people what time it is, they look at Big Ben, they're like, oh, it's 12 bong. Whose joke's that? I don't know. Someone on the internet. So London is bustling and full of noise. Oh, who do you want to cast as Mrs. Dalloway? Because my initial I... idea is Nicole Kidman, but I know she played Virginia Woolf. I don't know enough about her yet, so let's keep going. London is bustling and full of noise. Big Ben strikes. The king and queen are at the palace. It's a fresh mid-June morning, and Clarissa recalls one girlhood summer uh, on her father's, I'm pretty sure, seaside estate, like a country estate, but I think it's near the sea, called Burton or Burton. I'm going to call it Burton. Like Tim? With a U. Sorry, with an O-U instead of just a U. The burr. Burton. Burton. <laughs> Remember that summer where you only spoke in a French accent for an entire summer? Burton. Alana remembers. No one remembers. It's fine. She just put her face in her hand. She no one remembers anything before 2020. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a long ten years. This entire year has been a concussion, Mm. right? (laughs) Clarissa recalls herself at 18, standing at the window, feeling as if something awful might happen. Despite the dangers uh, of this modern life, um, and not possessing much knowledge, just what was passed on to her by her childhood governess, uh, Clarissa loves life. She loves life. I hate this bitch. All right. (laughs) Her one gift, she feels, is an ability to know people by instinct. Now, just a quick note, a side note. This book is technically technically written in the third person, but we experience the events of the novel through the prism of Clarissa's thoughts. So it was like part of this experimental writing um, movement at the time, kind of spearheaded, I'm pretty sure, by James Joyce. You've obviously heard of his Ulysses, the worst, hardest book ever written, the one that I will never do for this. Let's um, do that. Let's not. <laughs> so she was inspired by James Joyce's use of, use of stream of consciousness writing. Like he'll slip from thought to what's happening just, you know, w- without sort of flagging that. Um, but she disliked what she saw as the ego stemming from his use of direct interior monologue. Like I, I'm doing this, I'm thinking this, I'm doing that. So she, then- she does something instead called indirect interior monologue where the the you see the interior monologue but it's narrated by a narrator so it's in the third person so uh, like an example of this have i written it down now i'm just thinking it's just a diary it's literally like your thoughts as you're as you're having them and that includes when things actually happen my thoughts are just me constantly screaming in my head so i don't think you should make assumptions Mm. Don't mm me. Yes, I agree. Oh my god, I mm. hate you so much right now. <laughs> okay, here we go. So she's in so she's in a flower shop right now. Yeah, she's fifty two. She's buying flowers for her dinner party. When was she eighteen? She's remembering she's... when she was eighteen. Oh yeah. So that's the point. She goes in into memories and back into the present, like pretty fluidly. Mm. Um so this is when she's looking at flowers. 
As she began to go with Miss Pym, the florist, from jar to jar, choosing, nonsense, nonsense, she said to herself, more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this colour, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster surmounted all, and it lifted her up and up when, oh, a pistol shot in the street outside. What? Dear. Those motor cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look, and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas. As if those motor cars, those tyres of motor cars were all her fault. So, like, she hears a car backfire in the street outside, but you hear her thought of, oh, a pistol shot, like, and that interrupts her, her interior monologue. So it's like the outside world and the events that happen in the outside world kind of intrude on her inner monologue and they're all sort of flowing together and written together. So this entire book is just about this woman's goddamn dinner party on this Wednesday night. Kind of. Kind of. Um, It's a little bit more than that. Yeah, I swear if there's no plot, I'm going to punch you. I'm going to straight up face punch you. (laughs) I do it. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Good luck trying from all the way over there. So, okay, so this is before she actually gets to the flower shop. She runs into her old friend from her youth, Hugh Whitbread. (laughs) White bread. (laughs) Huge white bread. (laughs) Uh, so I just realized that it's white bread. Um, she asks after his wife, Evelyn, who suffers from an unspecified like chronic illness, um, but she doesn't really care. She doesn't really care about Evelyn. Um, she's kind of impressed by Hugh. He's like, he's handsome. He's kind of vapid, but but like he makes her feel like young again a little bit. He like, you know, he, like he'd take her under his wing and be like, you know, right there, little lady, like that kind of thing. Um, Is she younger than her? Same age. Roughly the same age, yeah. But they've known each other since they were young. Is this Hugh Grant? Hugh Whitbread? Yeah, he'd be perfect for it, actually. Hugh Grant? And then Hugh I'm, Grant, yeah. Let's just put Nicole Kidman in. Yeah, let's put her in there. I think she'd just do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's there, Hugh Grant's yeah. there, and he's yeah. like, oh, yes, my sick wife. So he's like, oh, she, you know, she's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she feels, yeah, beside him, and he's always dressed to the nines. Like, he's, he, I'm pretty sure he is an aristocrat. It's Hugh Grant in Paddington 2. I haven't seen it. What? I haven't seen either Paddington. You haven't seen any Paddington? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Paddington. Paddington, eh? Yeah. Can you please watch it? Can you and Josh please sit down and watch it? Yeah, of course. That's the kind of thing Josh actually would watch. It's so good. You have to watch one first, which is like, it's fine. It's good. But the two is great. two is where it's at. Awesome. Two is where the party is at. Okay. (laughs) So beside him, she feels self-conscious about her hat. She's like, oh no, my hat is like weird <laughs> you know there's people who like are always really well put together and when you're next to them you're like why did i wear this today so as clarissa walks to this flower shop her experience of the present is intermingled with her reflections of the past as i said she remembers <laughs> as how i said as i said she remembers how her old friend peter walsh disapproved of you he didn't like you she remembers peter once asked her to marry him she refused Though she feels really affectionately about him still. He apparently made her cry, though, once when he said she would marry a prime minister and throw parties. Which I think he, like, meant as a dig. Like, implying that she was, I don't know, a gold digger or shallow or something. Which, I mean, like, yeah, and it hurt, you know, the truth hurts, right? Like, to an extent. But she's also not shallow. She, But she did marry a politician and is throwing parties, so. Clarissa continues to she feel... She married a politician? Yeah, her I'm, husband, I'm, Richard I'm, Dalloway, is a conservative politician. Oh, in the 1920s. But like handsome? I don't know. Conservative in a John Hamm kind of way. 
Ooh, Tom Selleck. Tom I'm Selleck. picturing John Hamm. Younger Hamm's. Tom Selleck, but like, <laughs> John Hamm's too hot for this. What are you talking about? Tom no, Selleck like, is like perfect yeah, Republican. <laughs> Him in blue bloods? Oh my god. But but John Hamm's like what Republicans want to look like, you know? Specifically like Mad Men, John Hamm. Why are we giving the Republicans what they want? It was different in the 20s. Oh, is Tommy Shelby in the story somewhere? He'd be around. 1920s. Yes, actually, yeah, he's in he'd the 20s. Be... We can cast. There is actually someone who Killian Murphy would do a very good job of playing. Tommy Shelby, is he there? <laughs> he's not here. <laughs> I don't. How do I tell you this, Sam? Um, it's a different story. I don't buy it. Calarissa continues to feel the sting of Peter's criticisms, but she also feels like a bit of righteous anger. She's like, "Well, who's this? Who's Peter anyway? Peter was supposed to have accomplished big dreams. I think be a writer." Um, but he never did. So she. Uh, yeah. What he end up doing is he just like a, like a. Does he just work at like Hungry Jacks or something? I don't know what his job is, but <laughs> like, he's he's in India. He's been in India for th- like thirty years. So she's walking. She's thinking about death, as you do. She has this kind of spiritual moment where she feels like she will survive in the perpetual motion of modern London streets, in the lives of her friends and even strangers, in the trees and in, like, the fabric of her home. So she's like, energy, man. Like, <laughs> Isn't she just buying flowers? Yeah, but she's thinking, like, you think about death when you're just wandering along, as if you don't. I do not. Don't try I to do. pretend that you don't think about death all the time. Oh, sweet release. Um. We all do, though. Like, and it's, I don't know. What do I think about? Let, let me pretend I'm buying flowers for my politician husband's um, party. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> death? No, there was just nothing. But um, uh. <laughs> much like death. The bliss but, um, of, yeah, absolute transcendental blankness. Clarissa Dalloway peers at a book open in a shop window. Um, I think it's Cymbeline, Shakespeare's Shakespeare's play Cymbeline. And there's a line in it about death, which she reads through the shop window, which is, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. So it's like, it's 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 entertaining death as a kind of release or a rest from, from a hard life. Clarissa, while she walks, is thinking about how she cares what people think about her too much, about how she hates her body. She's like skinny and she's got like a beak nose. Uh, how people see her as an extension of her husband. Pretty standard stuff. She's just, like, ruminating on, you know. Just normal woman things. Her just insecurities. Things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She looks um, in the window of a glove shop and she thinks about her daughter, Elizabeth, um, who is a teenager. Oh, no. Elizabeth doesn't. Elizabeth doesn't care about fashion. She only cares about her dog and her history teacher, Miss Kilman. I think, I think she's, like, a private tutor, though. Oh. Not like a teacher, yeah, but like a private tutor. So her daughter is a like dog loving lesbian. Is that what's happening? Yeah, yeah. Miss so. Kilman um reads prayer books with Elizabeth and brings her along to communion. Miss Kilman's like this poor socialist Catholic German lady. <laughs> I know that's a lot of qualifiers, but they're all important. Wait, hang on. I'm just trying to cast her. Uh, <laughs> it's Molly Weasley from Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, that would work. Yeah, yeah. Clarissa wonders if Elizabeth is falling in sapphic love with Miss Kilman. Oh, hey! Yeah, I know, it comes up, and this is the 20s, so it's pretty crazy. I was just kidding, but there yeah. you go. But Richard believes her obsession with her teacher is just a phase. Clarissa thinks of her hatred for Miss Kilman. She hates Miss Kilman, which she is aware is irrational, 
Um, but she thinks of her, she imagines her as this monster, someone stealing her daughter. Um, but beyond that, is who is just in general offensive to her sensibilities. Like she's ugly, she's lower class, she's rude. Um, just like hire another person. What is she doing? Well, Elizabeth loves her, so. Well, she's not the one paying. Well, she doesn't want to be the bad guy. <laughs> Say I don't Richard know exactly what the arrangement is, but yeah, she hates her. I think she enjoys the hate, though. I think she oh, gets yeah. a kick out of it, you know, like righteous hatred. Yeah. Like I have a right to hate you because you've done X, Y, and Z. Mm. So Clarissa gets to the flower shop finally. She's enjoying herself. Oh, she's she not is... even in the fucking flower shop. Yet? Yeah. Jesus and Christ. then we have that passage where she hears the the pistol shot that she thinks is a pistol shot outside, but it's actually a car backfiring. So she peeps out and notices several other people are also snooping. There seems to be some kind of illustrious person passing in a very grand car. So mm-hmm. the people on the street wonder, is it the queen? Is it the prime minister? And and they all <laughs> they all apparently feel very patriotic when they see that car. They're like, oh, <laughs> all these important things happening in London, in my, in my country, in my city. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. <laughs> I don't know what it's Jolly like to feel that. So... This is where the narrative switches to its other main focus. And this is the okay. character who I think Killian Murphy could potentially ooh, play. Oh, okay. I'm so. back on board. Septimus Warren Smith is what? a veteran of World War One who's about 30 years old. Septimus? His name's Septimus. I'm not um, calling him that. It's weird. It's, um, it, it means seventh son. <laughs> it's Latin for like seventh son. I don't know if that he sucks. is. It's <laughs> like how many sons did your parents have? He's like, take a guess. <laughs> like seven? Nah, just four. Why do you why you say seven? So he's a veteran of World War One. He suffers from shell shock, also known as PTSD. Oh my god. Mm. Um, he believes, and he he believes he's responsible for the traffic congestion that the passing car causes. So it's 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 apparent that he also suffers from paranoid delusions. Mm. Which are definitely a separate thing to PTSD, but but it's obviously not discussed in the book. The book was written in the 1920s. Shell shock itself was like an entirely new concept. So yeah, it's Tommy Shelby. Yeah, I mean Tommy Shelby shock. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously in Wolf's time, these and and other mental illnesses were little understood. Like Wolf herself, um, she drowned herself at the age of 59. Like she suffered yeah, from she depression. Rocks in the pocket. Yeah, her whole life. So yeah. So obviously in this period of time, yeah, mental illness was was very little understood. So Lucrezia, um, or Rezia is her is her nickname, um, is his young Italian wife that he met during his deployment. Oh. Yeah. Um she's embarrassed by his odd manner and also a bit scared of him, especially since Septimus recently threatened to kill himself. So she's like scared for him, a little bit scared of him. He's just a completely different person. Why did she agree to marry him? She didn't That's know the this 20s, yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> he was hot. Um, <laughs> he's like England. And she's like, yeah, great. Get me out of war-torn Europe. I don't know who I'd cast her as. Uh, I don't know. Salma Hayek or something. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, automatically, automatically <laughs> No, she'd be um, Sophia Coppola. DiCaprio's, um, no, ugh. Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's uh, wife in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> You know, the Italian actress mm. that comes home with him. She's really good, yeah. Okay. So she's walking him, she's walking with him to Regent's Park where they sit together. She's getting him out in the fresh air. He's trying to express his thoughts to her, um, but they are incomprehensible to her. He's, he's As far as she's concerned, he's babbling. One of the things he believes is that he's psychically connected to trees. 
and that trees oh. therefore must not be cut down. No tree should be cut down ever. Did he um, start Greenpeace? <laughs> Is that what they did? Batman was Albert Einstein. <laughs> and Batman was Al Gore. <laughs> Albert Einstein. <laughs> he believes that if he looks beyond the park railings, he will see his friend Evans, who was killed in the war. Oh, dude. No. Yeah. And also, he fears that the world might burst into flames. So he's got a lot on his mind. Um, it is Al Gore. It's just Al Gore. <laughs> he, it, he wasn't crazy. He just could see the future. <laughs> the truth um, is sometimes inconvenient. <laughs> she's, doing, she's doing finger guns at me. Just one, though. God damn. Get over here. Punch you in the face. We'll punch each other in the face at the same time. <laughs> and then we hit each other's fists and we and yeah. fist bump me. <laughs> so it's a fist bump. <laughs> and then we're like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. We're just like, has anyone ever done this before? Guys, this is pretty fun. Do this with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and that man. What's <laughs> Albert Einstein. Nicholas Flamel. What? Uh, <laughs> Nay, no, that's from Harry Potter. I was thinking of the um the penicillin guy. <laughs> oh. God, who was it? <laughs> I referenced the guy from Harry Potter with the stupid philosopher's stone. Yeah. Or sorcerer's stone, depending on your region. <laughs> I had a sorcerer's stone. That was yeah, I had the I had the Americanized one. Well, I had both. At the same Richie time. Richie Rich over them. here. <laughs> Richie Rich with her two Harry Potter books. Richie Rich with his McDonald's in his house. What a dream. It's amazing. <laughs> He's got Maccas just in his house. Mm. A Maccas just... run? More like a Maccas walk down the stairs. Where are we? Not here. <laughs> <laughs> so they, so the, so the, the couple, the young married couple. Along with a bunch of minor characters who are just around. Observe a plane overhead writing letters in the sky. The letters eventually seem to read Toffee. It's an ad. It's just an ad. Oh. But Septimus believes someone is trying to communicate with him in a coded language. Oh, no. Retzia is heartbroken to see him this way. And she walks a little ways away to the fountain um, for a breather. She takes a second to herself. Um, she sees a statue of an Indian holding a cross. She feels alone. And, and for a second, she's angry at, at Septimus for being sick. After all, the, Dr. Holmes, who's been treating him, said there's nothing at all the matter with him. Because physically, nothing is. And obviously, at this point in time, they've got no fucking idea what they're doing. Um, the doctors are like, he's hot. I don't see the problem. <laughs> Look at him. He looks great. Suddenly, Retzia feels her, uh, like a surge of devotion to her husband just in a moment. And she and she goes back to sit next to him. So she's like, you know, she That's him. you at parties collecting yourself from Josh. And looking in the <laughs> like, mirror and going, I love him. <laughs> got like going back and like laying a hand on his knee. Like, like I have, I got you in sickness and in health. That's his sickness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we go back to Clarissa. She just got home and she feels like a nun who has left the world uh, and now returns to the convent. And she's like, mm, thank God. Here we are. Back. Back where I belong. <laughs> Although she does not believe in God. No. Um, she treasures the feeling um, of, of like coming home. Of, of that, that sense of like being 
a nun? I don't know. Although um, this is dispelled a little bit when she learns that Richard, her husband, has been invited to lunch at Lady Bruton's house <laughs> without her. Rude. Uh, she ascending. would like lunch, maybe. Maybe she's hungry. <laughs> no one ever Lady... asked her for lunch. Yeah, she thinks Lady Bruton like doesn't like her. She, she like, probably doesn't. And how dare he go? <laughs> he without wanted lunch asking too. To bring her. She she didn't know he didn't know if she was bringing lunch. <laughs> Ascending to her attic bedroom, a bit pissed, Clarissa returns to her reflections on her own mortality. She takes off her f- yellow feathered hat and she feels an emptiness. There's an emptiness at the heart of her life. Um, and she thinks about how she doesn't sleep in the same bed as Richard anymore. Oh. Since she was ill with influenza. It start, they started sleeping apart when she was ill. But I'm not sure how long ago that was. And they've kept it up since. And she, she's like, well, she likes the solitude. Although she feels a bit guilty for not loving Richard more passionately. When she reflects on an intimate friend of hers from her youth, Sally Seaton, who spent a summer at Burton, Burton, we learn that she is in fact sexually attracted to women. So that, I know, in the 1920s. Like, I was like, what? You got a gay. I know. Spotted. (laughs) (laughs) A singular gay in the wild. (laughs) Oh, that's Um, sad that she can't be. Yeah. And that may be, yeah. And that may be the reason for her comparative indifference to Richard. Sally Seton in Clarissa's memory was like a wild cigarette smoking, like, bohemian rebel. She had, like, dark hair. and She was just, like, cool. Just like a cool bitch. Just like Um, eating pussy left, right, and center. Yeah. I don't know if Sally did do that. Clarissa wanted her to. That that much is clear. Once Sally ran naked through the hallway at Burton. I'm not sure if she was like... (laughs) She forgot her towel in the shower. She's like... (laughs) Could have just Uh, been a dare. I had to do that at the uni once, but it was in my underwear, though. mm -hmm. That's funny. We're back back in the olden days when all the... All the crabs live together. The mud crabs. The I crab thought you were like the twenties. In Ivanhoe, my good friend and excellent comedian Jacob Sacher. Oh no! What have you done now? Who has a who has a Twitch stream? Hail from the Pale, spelled P-A-L-E, which you should check out. Uh, he used to he used to return from the shower with three towels, one wrapped around his body, one wrapped around his head, and one he would just like walk, like shuffle along with his feet on the floor. <laughs> all the way back to his room wait around his body like lady style or just around the hips around like, his like, way waist. i cannot remember i'm sorry um the towel the floor could have he could have just worn he slippers. was like <laughs> i'm like you can just dry yourself first like so your feet aren't wet and he's like no it's just a water dripping on the floor yeah dry yourself first and he has no hair to wrap up in the towel hair turban it was just one of the wonderful, wonderful things that we learned about each other that while makes, living in that big haunted house. It makes me think that he ha- he was carrying like um like a back like a brush and like he had the towel on lady styles and he had like a mask on and like some cucumbers in his hand or something. Just shuffling on the that was the that was the craziest thing. That was the wildest thing was just the the little shuffle <laughs> with the towel. Yeah, I'm trying to... Oh, yeah, and his mm. room wasn't the closest to the bathroom either. There was Simon's. No, so that means he had to go across the kitchen across and the dining the room. Across the dining room, yeah. yeah. So we all um. saw it. We all saw it. Yeah, check him out. Check him out on Twitch. Hail from Good. Hail, 
I-L from the pale, P-A-L-E. So she's gay and then what happened? Yeah, she's a bit gay. So she's reflecting fondly on Sally's, um, how Sally's behavior frequently shocked. Yes? Did, did you say she's a big gay or a bit gay? I said she's a bit gay. Okay, thank you. I bit. Just, I just had to. <laughs> she's a big old gay. gay. <laughs> so Sally's behavior apparently frequently shocked Clarissa's old aunt, Helena. Clarissa and Sally were very close. They planned to change the world together. And under Sally's influence, Clarissa began to to read Plato in bed before breakfast and to read Shelley, Percy Shelley poetry. So she's like, you know, improving, you know, the friend, you know, those friendships that are. Are you trying to find a way to say, um, to compliment you? No, because then I realized that it might be taken that way. And that's why I stopped. But like you know, you know she she's good influence in some ways. Um, I got Shut you your husband. Up, Thank you very much. <laughs> I found you your life partner. Mm-hmm. I bestowed him upon to you a present. <laughs> his penis wrapped in a ribbon, ready to go. I was wondering about that. <laughs> that was me. I was, I was like, I'm ribbon. not gonna look. I'm just gonna tie it. <laughs> I'm not looking. I'm just wondering. So I was like, what's going on there? And he's like, it's a long story. Oh, he said that. <sighs> I thought he would take credit for it. Like, it's your Christmas gift, baby. (laughs) That happens in a fan fiction that I've read. (laughs) Happy snake, no fruit day, bitch. (laughs) Okay, Sally. Yeah, so she's, you know, she's introducing Clarissa to some some cool classic philosophy and, and heavy, heavy hitters. Clarissa remembers going downstairs in a white dress to meet Sally. I'm thinking of a line from Shakespeare's play Othello. Um, which reads, if it were now to die, twere now to be most happy. Oh my god, that's from um, She's All That when she walks down in the red dress. Wait. <laughs> and Freddie really? Prince Jr. was like, says that? maybe the bit wasn't a, the main reason all along. <laughs> Never seen that movie. <laughs> I just know it from the several spoofs that it has gained. So like Othello, she believes that if she were to die at that moment, she would be she would be fine with it. Um, Othello kills his wife, Desdemona. I don't know if you know this about Othello. Out of jealousy. Um, and then he also kills himself when he finds out that his jealousy was unwarranted and he killed his wife for no reason. Huh. That's just a little background on Othello. Anyway, Clarissa remembers the most exquisite moment of her life. When one evening on the terrace at Burton, Sally picked a flower and kissed her on the lips. Ooh. For Clarissa, the kiss was like a religious experience. How old were they when this was happening? Late teens. Like okay. 18, potentially a couple years later. Mm-hmm. But earlier on in the story, it explicitly said, she remembers a moment at Burton when she was 18. And then they don't talk about her age at Burton. So I'm assuming young adult. Okay. Like 18. And this is a childhood friend kind of thing? I'm not sure how long they knew each other, but definitely when she was a young teenager. Like when she was a late teen. Peter Walsh um, interrupted the young women on the terrace. Um as thoughts of him now interrupt Clarissa's recollection of Sally. It had always mattered to Clarissa that Peter had a good opinion of her. She really cared what he thought. She respected him. She wonders what he would think of her now. Anyway, the house is abuzz with pre-party activity, and Clarissa has decided to wear her green dress, which actually needs a bit of mending, so she sits down to do that. She knows her servants would be happy to mend it for her, but she cares about them to an extent. She's, like, sensitive to their workload. She doesn't want to give them extra work to do when they're already really busy. Um, and I think she wants to be a generous mistress and is grateful to them for indulging her in in doing that. Like, 
Green more than dress. wanting to, is more it than the wanting dress from atonement is that what she's wearing to the party maybe something with sleeves i don't know she's <laughs> mid 50s it's the 20s yeah but yeah she like wants to be a generous mistress more than she wants to be generous if that oh. makes sense that's the impression i got so she's like she wants to be this thing and they let her be this thing Anyway, as she quietly <laughs> sews her dress, she thinks about life as a wave that begins, collects, and then falls, only to renew and begin again. It's actually, I know it, it seems like one of those books where not much happens, but the, the writing is actually genuinely beautiful, and I'm not doing it justice at all. Like, the way she writes is gorgeous. Well, and maybe we should not have butchered her. <laughs> <laughs> should have just done a goddamn James Joyce. Maybe, your favorite. Uh, God, no. Your next Moby Dick. I will probably murder everyone in this house if I have to do that. The front doorbell rings. It's Peter Walsh. Oh, well, look who's here. What? Isn't he supposed to be in India? Question mark? <laughs> That's rhetorical, by the way. <laughs> I'm about to tell you why he's not in India. <laughs> Peter Walsh is playing with his pocket knife, um, as he's always done. It's like a nervous tick he has. He, he kind of does it when he's like... He's got like one of those like cool like flicky butterfly knife. But then he's just like always like sorry I'm just that so beat. nervous, man. <laughs> my uh, my first boyfriend had a butterfly pen <laughs> that he bought specifically so he could practice. A butterfly so pen. But you can buy a pen, so it's like a pen instead of the knife part. That's like but the it, worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's pretty lame. But I was like, whatever you want, baby. Just <laughs> I hate that version of you so much. You're cool to me. <laughs> Whatever you want, baby. Love you. <laughs> oh, wow. You're getting real good at it. <laughs> God, I'm, oh, I'm so, so glad sorry. I never yeah. knew that version of you. <laughs> if, if he is listening to this, I apologize. And I was in the wrong. <laughs> no, you weren't. <laughs> so... He feels irritated with Clarissa for the kind of life she's chosen to live with conservative, stuffy old politician Richard Dalloway. Oh, bitch, what the fuck? Like, on the one hand, yeah, on the other hand, it's not your business. <laughs> Peter? Um, seeing that she's been mending a party dress, he automatically assumes that all she's been doing in the 30 years since he left <laughs> is partying and social climbing. Sorry, I hate this guy. <laughs> she just happened to be, like, knitting and he's like, oh... Of course, you'd Look be at Clarissa her. with her fucking dress. Yeah, basically. Who who's gonna play Peter? Uh, ooh. Well, we're since we're going in this Mad Men universe, it should be mm. Vincent Cartizer, the guy that plays Peter. Mmm. You know, okay. the one that's married to um like, yeah. to Annie from Community. <laughs> yeah, I imagine him as hotter. But, Hotter, okay. but I, he's meant to be annoying. Is he meant to be hot? He sounds annoying. He's he's like I mean he's he's selfish and self obsessed, but he's also like charming and charismatic and like. So he's hot. Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock? No. Uh, he's not hot though. Who's hot? I think. Who's an asshole but is hot? Is it John Hamm again? <laughs> I mean a little bit, but like John Hamm, but like sad and failed, you know? No, John so Hamm. John, Hamm, John Hamm's yeah. her husband and Peter Walsh. He just has like a different <laughs> wig on each That's John Hamm in the wig. It's not John Hamm. And he's got a tan because he's been in India. <laughs> you have to keep <laughs> scrubbing him between takes. 
I just completely blanked. I don't know any actors anymore. What happened to me? Hang on. Yeah, let me... What is the last thing I watched? Blades of Glory. It's Will Ferrell. <laughs> <laughs> I was going on Netflix real quick just to, like, look and see some faces. No, hang on. Let me... Let me... Let me dig into my brain hole. Your Rolodex. Yeah. My Rolodex. Oh! Oh! Michael Fassbender? Oh. Yes. Or Army Hammer? Oh, yeah. So, so let's say Army Hammer as Peter Walsh, John nice. Hamm as I'm Richard Dalloway. Okay, done. And Hugh Grant as uh, Whitebread. So yeah, so he uh, he's been gone for years, by the way. Apparently, he left for India right after she rejected his proposal, and their correspondence since then has been fairly limited. He says he's in town to arrange a divorce for his young fiance Daisy. So what? that's a bit naughty, right? So she's clearly married. But also, she's going to marry him as soon as she can wrangle the divorce with this other guy. So something a bit underhanded and naughty going on here, right? Is she... Let's just cast her as literally Daisy in Great Gatsby. So, um, Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good one. She's not in it. She's not in it at all. She's still in India during this whole thing. But yeah, I like that. I like that for her. Okay. (laughs) He imagines the, the Dalloway. Oh, so she... Yeah, so she still lives in India and has two children. Um, oh, by her okay. by her soon-to-be uh, ex-husband. So that's a bit naughty. He imagines the Dalloways consider him a failure. He, no one is he, thinking about you, Peter. <laughs> which he apparently doesn't care about, but oh. thinks about a lot, so... <laughs> so I don't care, right. but, you know, if I did care... Um... <laughs> yeah, exactly. We switched back to the perspective of Clarissa, who feels like a frivolous chatterbox around Peter. He's, like, so serious and learned. Peter bursts into tears. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> He's overwhelmed by the moment, the memories, whatever. He's embarrassed and surprised by it. And Clarissa's also surprised. He's the one that his... came to the door. Why? He's like, oh, so the yeah. camera just turned on and took my photo. I'm not a model. <laughs> <laughs> Clarissa um, is also surprised, but she takes his hand and gives him a kiss. She wonders, like a like chase tongue. She's not oh, okay. cheating. Yeah. Uh, she wonders briefly whether she would have been happier if she'd married Peter instead of Richard. I know. Peter has these weird expectations of her. <gasps> you know who Richard should be instead of um, John Hamm? John Hamm? Who? Um, James Marsden, Hollywood's favorite um, cock? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the British guy who looks like him. Harvey. Keitel? <laughs> no. <laughs> the Witcher. What's his name? Superman. Oh, Henry C- Cavill. Henry Cavill. 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 Harvey? <laughs> Whatever, Henry Harvey, same thing. So, Superman. Yeah, Superman, So, this is just the man from Uncle, then. So, instead of Nicole Kidman, (laughs) it's like um, Alicia Alicia Vikander. Yeah, Vikander. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. So, this is a different (laughs) book now. (laughs) Um, Peter pulls out a gun. (laughs) But he does have a butterfly knife. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Virginia. I know. She did die for this. (laughs) So, yeah, he's like, why am I crying? And she's like, I I cannot tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, buddy, I don't know. <laughs> I just live here. <laughs> yeah, so she's like, I wonder if I would have preferred to marry him instead of Richard. Peter asks Clarissa if she's happy. But before she can answer, Elizabeth, Clarissa's daughter, enters the room. And I imagine her as, like, Wednesday Adams. <laughs> Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci, yeah. All right. Just a bit emo, quiet, angry. 
<laughs> gay. A bit gay, yeah. Um, so she enters the room and Peter's like, I'm going. And Clarissa calls <laughs> after him, remember my party tonight. So she basically gives him an invitation to the party tonight. He Which just showed up to cry and leave. <laughs> Pretty much. That's so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> So we share Peter's point of view as he leaves Clarissa's house. Um, Peter believes Clarissa has grown both hard, hard-hearted, yet also sentimental, which seems contradictory to me. But maybe Peter's not the person we should be asking about emotional matters. He just keeps he critis- making all these assumptions about her. And he's just like, yeah, she's just like, I'm just mending my dress because I don't want my servants to do it. And he's like, ah, classic Clarissa, mending her dresses, planning her parties. For I her love stupid, you. <laughs> I love you. Burst into tears. Can I go to your party? <laughs> Said your daughter. Up. She's kind of hot. <laughs> oh, gross. So he criticizes her harshly to himself in his mind, thinking unhappily that the timidity she showed um, in her youth has become conventionality now that she's middle aged. Oh my god. I know. Like no one asked you. I know. He's just put her on this pedestal, and she's like, "Can I come down?" Then he's like, "No." I'm going to go to India um, and you're going to stay right up there. For 30 years. <laughs> then I'll come by. I'll have. I'll cry. And then I'll, uh, I'll come to your party, maybe. Then who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> who knows? Can I cry at the party? I don't know. <laughs> He's worried that he annoyed her by dropping in unannounced. And I'm it's crying. like, maybe, maybe, guy. Yeah, he's embarrassed for having cried in front of her. For a second, he's like, ah, fuck her. And he's thrilled that he's in love with Daisy. And he has a life in India about which Clarissa knows nothing. Next moment, he has a full 180. And he's down about Clarissa rejecting him 30 years ago. (laughs) Because he's clearly not over it. (laughs) This guy. So much is happening within him. Even his butterfly knife. He's just like, his hand is all cut up because he's just like... Mm -hmm. The sound of St. Margaret's Bell, which is like another non-Big Ben clock tower, I like guess. Four bongs or something. Yeah, four bongs. Um, it sounds the half hour. Um, and it makes him think about Clarissa's uh, eventual death. Why is everyone I, thinking about that right now? I don't know. I can't remember exactly because they're old. Maybe you think about it a lot when you're old. I can't remember exactly what brought that on. Um, maybe just seeing her older, which upsets him, as does the thought of growing old himself. So he knows, and this is really interesting, he will eventually have to ask Richard's help in finding a job oh. in London. So Meanwhile, he's, he's, he's going to move he, back to London then. He's not saying I think so, India. with Daisy, yeah. A beautiful so. life in India. Mm, he's going to bring her back or something. Um, meanwhile, he's telling himself he doesn't give a shit, or um, does not care a straw, what the Dalloways think of him. <laughs> This guy loves lying, doesn't he? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote, sure, bud. This is Holden Caulfield grown up. Sure, Jan. He admits to himself as he walks along that he's been a failure in some sense. And he <laughs> remembers being expelled from Oxford, though I, I don't think we learn what it was for. Maybe just being shit. No, um, it was for saying things to his friends. <laughs> Fuck, you. Fuck you, Miles. Saying things to people he liked. <laughs> he sees a couple military boys march by and he feels respect for them. In the middle of Trafalgar Square... Um, the big central square, Peter suddenly feels free. Nobody except Clarissa knows he's even in London. He sees a young woman who seems to him to become the ideal woman as he looks at her. Um, and he starts following her, comparing her to Clarissa and decides that this this other woman is not rich or worldly as Clarissa is. There's something unspoiled about her, it seems. He wonders if she's respectable. Oh he feels God. like 
a romantic buccaneer and is impressed oh. by his own adventurousness in stalking this oh poor woman. Oh my god, this fucking Peter, his entire narrative is no one fucking asked. <laughs> and if you think no one cares, it's because they literally don't. <laughs> like, you could have died in India and no one would have batted a goddamn eyelid. The woman takes out her keys and enters the house, never having spoken to Peter. Good for her, thank god. Yeah, good for her. I love that um, for her. Yeah, which doesn't trouble him very much in the end. He's like, no, oh, that was a fun whim, just stalking a random woman for a while. <laughs> and with his butterfly knife, he's just like, it was great. <laughs> Gonna follow you. Um, he thinks of Clarissa telling him to remember her party that night. And I think he's a bit salty about it. I don't know why. He's just, just like, why would I come to your party? Just Peter one. things, I guess. Peter decides to sit in Regent's Park and smoke. Um, have a smoke before his appointment with the lawyers with whom he's going to help arrange Daisy's divorce. He observes London and is proud of its, you know, sense of impression of civilization, um, having been in India so long. He's like, yeah, London, empire, woo, I love that. <laughs> he remembers how he couldn't get along with Clarissa's father. They didn't get along at all. Sitting next to him on the park bench is an old nurse with a baby asleep in its stroller. Oh. Um, Peter thinks about Elizabeth. He speculates that Elizabeth does not get along with Clarissa. He's like, I've, they probably don't get along. Clarissa has a tendency to overdo things, he thinks. Um, she's a bit extra, which might embarrass a teen like Elizabeth. Soon he dozes off in the park as only a white man can. <laughs> in the 20s, with a butterfly mm. knife clasped so tight <laughs> in his fist. While he snoozes, he dreams. <laughs> He dreams of a solitary traveller who conceives of different images of women. The traveller, who seems to be Peter himself, oh. imagines a woman made of sky and branches who bestows compassion and absolution. He imagines this woman as a siren then, someone who might lure him to his death with her beauty. Finally, he imagines a mother figure who seems to wait for his return. While the image of the woman, who's now a landlady, asks if she can get the solitary traveller anything else at the end of the dream, he realises he does not know to whom he can reply. Peter wakes up saying out loud, quote, the death of the soul. What? <laughs> the death of the soul. Yeah. I imagine. <laughs> imagine, like, being on a plane next to someone and they're just like, the death of the soul. And you're just like, do you want my peanuts? I don't <laughs> One time when I was... So drunk, I ha Josh had to carry me down to the shower twice. Oh, I remember this, yeah. Because I threw up twice, and he had to carry me because I could not walk. Mm -hmm. Um, I apparently sitting in the shower, I told him sing the death song. I have fallen down those <laughs> stairs so many times, so I'm surprised that he managed to carry you down. Yeah, so he's like the death of the song, <laughs> um, and he links the dream and those words to something that happened in Burton. In one summer in the early 1890s, oh my God. Okay. Clarissa expressed shock about a neighbor who had a baby before she was married. <gasps> Her reaction came off as prudish to Peter, who went as far as to feel that that moment marked the death of Clarissa's soul. <laughs> um, he thought of her as arrogant, judgmental, unimaginative, and remembers that the others who were at the table were uncomfortable with her blatant scorn and apparent lack of sympathy for the woman. Imagine if all so that happened was... So she was probably just like, um, what a slut! And they were like, No, imagine if bitch. he thought all that, and literally all that happened was Clar Clarissa went, Oh no! And Peter was like, Oh! <laughs> Oh, this, this hollow, soulless woman. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, that night, 
party. So Richard Dalloway had come to Burton for dinner and Peter knew immediately that Clarissa would marry Richard, towards whom she seemed like nurturing and maternal in a way. She was like making sure he was okay. Peter finally decided after witnessing this to confront her about his own feelings for her. They met by a broken fountain that dribbled water and Peter demanded the truth about her feelings. <laughs> Clarissa rejected him and Peter left Burton that night. Clarissa's like, he's like, how do you feel about me? She's like, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. Back in the present, Peter watches a child in Regent's Park run into Retzia's legs, although he doesn't know her. But then we switch to Retzia's perspective. So it's a little bit love, actually. It's like multiple stories, this web of, of kind of lives intersecting. I hate that I said love, actually, to, to describe that, but here we are. Um, you grants in it. <laughs> we switch to Retzia's perspective as she helps the child stand up. And she thinks to herself how she cannot tolerate Septimus's disturbing behavior anymore. She's like, I can't deal with this. I'm not trained. <laughs> I thought she literally just said, I will stand by you, my husband. I have such devotion to you. And he just goes... It's death of the soul. <laughs> Me too. No, no. That I was know. But okay, he right, agrees. Yeah. He's, He's like, like, did someone say death of the soul? <laughs> like, yeah. Septimus says people are wicked. Once by the river, she remembers, he even suggested that he and Andoretzia kill themselves. He feels he knows the meaning of the world. A dog seems to become a man in front of his eyes. So there's obviously a kind of psychotic break happening. He's, he's experiencing delusions, visual, visual hallucinations. Should probably go to a hospital. Yeah. Well, what would they do there? Just probably like, like spray him with cold water. Yeah. No, just like electroshock therapy or a lobotomy, like a a, a screwdriver eyeball lobotomy. That happened to my great aunt. A screw, like a ice pick lobotomy. Well, it was like a lobotomy in in the probably sixties. So Is maybe she, what happened to her? She was pretty much just like, yeah, like vegetative. Not vegetative, but. Like the forgotten um Yeah, like Kennedy. it's like Yeah. Yeah, like dementia E. Yeah. Couldn't I mean, yeah, couldn't. maybe don't put ice picks to people's brains, maybe. I don't yeah. know. I'm not a doctor, but uh Yeah. I don't know if she had schizophrenia, but she definitely had like mental illness and bipolar. And yeah, they put her in a asylum. No, mm. not an asylum. They gave her the lobotomy and I think then she was just in a nursing home for a really long time. Because she just couldn't take care of herself. So, um, Retzia wishes she were back in Milan, making hats with her sisters. Oh, fair enough. That sounds fun. She tells Septimus it's time to go for his doctor's appointment. Septimus believes his dead friend Evans is walking towards them in the park, but the man approaching them is actually Peter Walsh. Ooh. To Peter, Septimus and Retzia seem like a young couple having a lover's quarrel. He just assumes, like, eh, trouble in paradise. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, woman problems? Oh, I know. (laughs) And then Septimus is like, my soul is in the trees do not cut them down he's like man girls right (laughs) women peter marvels over the changes that have taken place in london since he was there five years ago in 1918 women seem to dress better to him and he likes their new habit of wearing makeup he's also impressed by the open-minded tone of the newspapers um, and the new apparently sexually liberated generation he's like man the kids today right on (laughs) That's <laughs> <It's> the 20s. <laughs> this puts him in mind of Sally Seaton, of course, um, having a go at Hugh Whitebread. It's Whitbread, but... I know, bread. that's fine. This is fine. Mm. One time in Burton for his conservative views on women's rights. Um, she let him have it. Apparently, Sally had told Hugh he represented all that was detestable about the British middle class. <laughs> Peter hates Hugh. 
personally, um, but is also jealous of him. On the other hand, he finds Richard Dalloway a dull but good good guy. And is look, let's be real, he's also jealous of him. Yeah, he just sounds like he's jealous of anything. Yeah, he remembers Richard once said nobody should read Shakespeare's sonnets because doing so is like listening listening at a keyhole. Um, intruded, like intruding on something pr- that should be private. What? Um, of course, we're not told whether Richard was like joking. He's probably like doing this. He's like, Wah. like, man, no one should read that stuff. It's like private, man. You know. And then Richard's like, oh, he fucking philistine. <laughs> Won't even read Shakespeare. This guy. So yeah, <laughs> it sounds like a Richard problem. Like, sorry, it sounds like a Peter problem. Like, yeah, it sounds things. like a him problem. Yeah. Um, he can't seem to stop thinking about Clarissa, but he tells himself he's not in love with her anymore um, and reflects on her worldliness and her love of rank and tradition, aspects of her personality he finds unappealing. Though reportedly no longer in love with her, he wishes that she hadn't married Richard. Hmm. It forces her to quote Richard constantly, withholding her own thoughts and stuff like that. On the other hand, Peter feels that she has a genius for making her home a meeting place for young people and artists. He wonders if she gains insight from the philosophers she read as a girl. It's revealed also that when Clarissa was young, she saw a falling tree kill her sister, Sylvia. Oh my goodness. Yeah, like she just saw it happen. But this didn't make her bitter. Actually, she continues to enjoy nearly everything. I get the sense that she's like, life is fleeting, so we have to live it to the fullest. Like She that was, that saw was what her she took sister away. get like, squashed by a tree like Play-Doh and she was like, I'm fine. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was like, you know, we could die at any moment. Let's let's live good lives. That was like what she took away from it, which seems like a fairly healthy thing to take away from it. Um, and that's and that's and that gives context, I guess, to the other stuff she says earlier on in the book where she's like, you know, life needs to be lived like she lo- you know, she might not know everything, but she loves life. And it's like she seems to have this really healthy attitude, I guess, <laughs> in that sense, despite her her other insecurities. I guess. Anyway, keep going. Sorry, We're sorry. We're getting to the yes. juicy parts of it. Yeah. Peter muses on whether he's really in love with Daisy, since he's not tortured over her in the same way that he was with Clarissa. He reflects that he wants to marry her primarily because he doesn't want her to marry anyone else. Oh, my God. Um, Peter, hears someone... <laughs> Alana's done. <laughs> I hate this man. Yeah. How, how, how dare you make me hate Army Hammer? How dare you? <laughs> Peter hears someone opposite the Regent's Park tube station singing a song about love and death. The voice comes from a decrepit old woman who, at first, he doesn't realize is a woman. She seems sexless at first, like just some kind of. <laughs> she didn't have monster. her titties out. <laughs> He's just like, yeah. no, that's um, a dude. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she sings the line, and if someone should see, what matter they? Peter feels sorry for her and gives her a coin. Um, now we shift back to Retzia's point of view. She's still in the park. She also hears the old woman's song. And at first she also feels pity for her. But the more Retzia listens, the more the song actually comforts her. She listens to the lyrics of the song and she's like... It's Folklore by Taylor Swift. The yeah, whole album. <laughs> How good is it? I know. God damn it. I told you it was good. Damn you, Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, so Ret- is like... Oh, gosh, there's something like, you know, it's almost as if the old woman has been singing it forever and would sing it forever. And it's like this just eternal part of the fabric of the world, this song. And it gives her a lot of comfort. Retzia becomes hopeful that the new psychiatrist, Sir William Bradshaw. Oh. So he's, not, he's a knight, apparently. Sir. She's, yeah, so she's like, maybe Septimus, maybe he'll cure Septimus, whatever. <laughs> whatever. 
the point of view changes again, becoming closer to that of a sort of traditional omniscient third person narrator. So we see Septimus and Retzia crossing the street and we and we learn a little bit about Septimus's past. So we're going back in time a little bit to play catch up, like what led us here. So before the war, Septimus was an aspiring poet um, and he fell in love with a woman named Isabel Pohl who gave lectures on Shakespeare. So he's a romantic. And the, and the point of view changes for a brief time to that of Mr. Brewer, who was Septimus's boss at the oh time. Oh, goodness. Um, okay. Uh, who thought Septimus had potential and noticing that he looked weak and unhealthy, recommended he play football. When Septimus went to fight in World War One, he became inseparable from his officer, Evans. Oh. Evans died, however, and oh. Septimus felt nothing, um, which scared him. He was scared by his own lack of emotion. And I guess... Partly as a reaction to this, he married Lucrezia, um, a young Italian woman, when he was billeted in Milan. So since the war, Septimus has, become, uh, has begun to see ugliness in everything. Retzia wants children, but Septimus does not want to bring children into what he sees as a really cruel world. Yeah, because um, if they have children now, that child will fight in World War Two, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, well... <laughs> When his mental illness grows more severe, Dr. Holmes, this guy, Dr. Holmes, comes to treat him. So Holmes is the guy who's like saying, Septimus, there's nothing physically wrong with him. He's merely in a funk. Um, he needs a trip to the music hall, a healthy diet, a bit of exercise. He'll He's be fine. in a funk. He feels that the trouble is Septimus's nerves. Septimus sees Holmes as the embodiment of human nature. Um, by which he seems to mean the worst in human nature. He, his idea of human nature, as you as you may guess, comes from World War One. So he's like, humans are bad. And Holmes is the worst of them. And he thinks that Holmes has condemned him to death for his inability to feel. Finally, Holmes suggests that if the Smiths have no confidence in him, I think he's getting a little bit fed up um, with the lack of progress and with Septimus's recalcitrance towards his suggestions, um, they should visit a specialist named Sir William Bradshaw who we're going to learn about soon. Big Ben strikes noon. Oh, 12 ball. Yeah. Clarissa lays her green dress on her bed and the Smiths walk down Harley Street to the appointment with Sir William, who's a celebrated psychiatrist and who Virginia Woolf seems to use to criticise the early 20th century attitude to medicine in general. He's grey-haired, he has an expensive grey car. He, he looks at Septimus and he's like, this guy, he's in a state of complete physical and nervous breakdown. <laughs> He figures that out within three minutes. When He's William, literally, like, uh, weeping. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I, I diagnose you fucked up. <laughs> He's just, like, shaking and saying things. And it's like, listen, I'm a knight. I'm a doctor. I'm a baller. But you, my sir, are sick. <laughs> when Sir William asks Septimus if he served with distinction in the war, Septimus says something about the war being a little shindy of schoolboys with gunpowder. <laughs> Yeah, Septimus tries to explain to the doctor he's committed a terrible crime, which Retzia is like, that's not true. Um, <laughs> no crime. He did not do that. And the doctor takes her aside. Um, she admits to him that Septimus has threatened to commit suicide. So William prescribes a long period of bed rest, which is one of the terrible, terrible ideas they had at the time. Was it just like sleeping? It's literally like being confined to a bed. You're going to get like so, bed sores, dude. Yeah. And like people literally went crazy. Yeah, because you can't do anything. Let me. They, there's, there's ISO. A, yeah, we we should do the. There's a short story called the Yellow Wallpaper, which is about this, and they'd often, in particular, prescribe it to women who had hysteria, mm. and they're like, "You're not allowed to leave your bed." And the woman's like, "Okay, well now I'm really going crazy." <laughs> Great. 
Did I read it aloud at a yes. spooky party that you were at? There we go. That's yeah. what's happened. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. So we we obviously had one of the a spooky... cornerstones of your personality. Yes, <laughs> we had a spooky party, a la the turning of the screw, where people read ghost stories, <laughs> and that was the one that I read. It was just you. Everyone else was saying other things. It was never have I ever, and then you started reading that. <laughs> no, <laughs> it wasn't Samantha. We're on the same page. That's what he's prescribing. Okay, Deception. great. Yes, so he'll have to be separated from Rexia in order to do this. So William prefers not to speak of madness, but rather a lack of proportion. Oh he's the son. He was the son of a tradesman, in fact, um, which meant he never had time to read, which he's resentful of, especially when confronted with Septimus's literary cultivation, despite his shabbiness. So he's like, nah, you ain't like books, do ya? Who can't read the fucking psychiatrist? Yeah, he he's not he he's not cultured. How, how the goddamn is... hell is he a psychiatrist if he can't goddamn read? Well, no, like, he can read. He's... <laughs> how was <Samantha>. he knighted? <laughs> if he's illiterate. Well, then in the show. No, he, he's just, he just wishes he read more. Okay, as many that, of us do. He's not well read. I'm in Septimus's, so he's like, fuck you, crazy man. You and your illusions. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Sir William tells Septimus that everybody... <laughs> has moments of depression and that nobody lives for themselves alone he's like fuck up old chum he reminds septimus that he has a brilliant career ahead of him septimus again he's feels he's being tortured by the personification of human nature this time the personification is sir william of course i mean he again tries to confess to his terrible crime but he can't actually remember what it is because obviously it's not real he manages to stammer out just the word I. <laughs> and I, and so William tells him not to think about himself. <laughs> Don't worry about it. So William is eager to end the consultation and says he will let them know about the arrangements between five and six that evening. He's like, I'll come pick you up. <laughs> Have your things packed? We're taking you out to my uh, country sanatorium. Oh, no. Retzia seems to agree with Septimus's view to the extent that she thinks Sir William has failed them to an extent and that he is, quote, not a nice man. <laughs> Sir William's oh. philosophy of proportion involves prescribing weight gain and solitary rest. He secludes mentally ill people and forbids that they have children, oh. which is a little bit eugenics-y of him. Um, his patients must conform to this sense of proportion, or he considers them mad. Conversion or pressure to conform to social norms masquerades as brotherly love. But in colonies like India and at home in London, conversion is actually a quest for power. This is where Virginia Woolf is like, here's something that I think. And this, and this guy is like her way of sort of criticizing this attitude um, in medicine and, and in the empire in general. So she's like, Sir William is a colonizer of people, of people's minds. And even his wife, Lady Bradshaw, lost, lost touch with herself 15 years ago. And now all she does is take pictures of decaying churches. That's her hobby. That's um, your hobby. No, it's not. <laughs> she says. Could be. <laughs> guiltily. Patients occasionally ask Sir William if the matter of living or not living is a personal choice. Though he shrugs his shoulders when asked if God exists, so William adamantly believes that no choice exists between life and death. And if the patient's unsocial impulses, quote, are out of control, he sends them away to a home. Basically, he's just controlling everyone and everything, and he impresses his will upon the weak. Oh, okay. And, and Virginia Woolf thinks that sucks and isn't good. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> Stamps it sucks and isn't, isn't good. good. Me as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> sucks and isn't good. So we, we, the narrative float over to Hugh Whitbread, 
um, Mr. Whitebread, who's examining the shoes and socks in a shop window in Oxford Street. <laughs> Good for him. And he's about to go to that Lady Bruton lunch that Clarissa was not invited to. Oh, fun. Um, but Richard was. He So he's not a very uh, interesting person. Um, but he's very courteous in an old-fashioned way, which makes him a hit with old ladies like Bruton, Lady Bruton. And he brings her a bunch of carnations every time he visits. Her assistant, Millie Brush, hates him, but he doesn't. he's oblivious to this. Oh. <laughs> Lady Bruton, uh, 62 years old, prefers Richard to Hugh, but she likes Hugh. She thinks he's kind. Um, she announces she's very big. She's kind of a big wig mover and shaker. People know her around town and in Parliament. She announces to her two guests that she wants their help to write a letter, um, but after lunch. And so this magnificent lunch appears like Is she magic. she also illiterate? Can no one read or write in this book? Sort of. Like, she can read and write, but she's not good at it because, you know, she just has, like, a probably, like, a year seven education with a, govern- a homeschooled governess or oh. something. Like, you know, none of the women really got much during this day and age. Great. Lunch appears like magic upon the table. Nobody seems to have paid for the food. And it also seems to set itself. The table just... As as it does when you are rich. Obviously, there's servants going around. But, you know, rich people cannot... They're wearing, like, camouflage. (laughs) (laughs) Stage blacks, just... (laughs) (laughs) Richard thinks Lady Bruton, who's the descendant of a great general, should have been a general herself. So this, who, who we, with Henry Cavill at the moment. Maybe Lady Bruton's like, Meryl Streep's too obvious. Who else is there? I don't know, Judy Dench. Helen Mirren. Yeah, Judy Dench, actually. Yeah, something, someone a bit like, aggressive. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And illiterate, apparently. He has a great respect for her and what she represents, this sort of old moneyed family. Lady Bruton asks after Clarissa. She's like, how's Clarissa? (laughs) Uh, Who I didn't invite. She knows Clarissa thinks that she doesn't like her. But she doesn't really have an opinion, I think, either way. Hugh pipes up that he met Clarissa this morning. He's like, ran into Clarissa this morning. Everyone's like, that's very nice, Hugh. Well done. (laughs) Good job. And Lady Bruton remarks that Peter Walsh is in town. She's heard Peter's in town. Which leads them all to remember how passionately in love with Clarissa Peter once was. (laughs) Peter somewhere like, I don't love Clarissa. (laughs) (laughs) Kicking like stones like... "Mm." Yeah, so she's going to get these two to write a letter for her about immigration to Canada. Like, she obviously has some sort of opinion on it. We don't really know what that is, but she wants to write a letter to the Times to persuade people to, to I don't know, vote a certain way about it or something. Um, Richard thinks that the letter that Hugh's written is nonsense. Uh, but Lady Bruton is thrilled by it. She's like, nice stuff. Hugh, good job. Um, she she takes the carnations that he offered her. She puts them in the front of her dress and she calls him my prime minister. And before they go, Richard reminds Lady Bruton about Clarissa's party. He's like, you coming to the party later? <laughs> um, she's going to be pissed at you because you didn't invite her today. <laughs> but you come, Just be right? ready. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're doing finger guns at each other. The men leave and Lady Bruton reclines on the sofa. She's pretty pleased with herself. She imagines Hugh and Richard... Um, are attached to her by a thread which grows thinner as they move farther away from her. The invisible string of uh, Taylor's folklore. Oh my god. There she is. (laughs) 2020. (laughs) Hugh and Richard are lazily kind of looking into an antique shop window. Hugh considers buying a Spanish necklace for his wife, Evelyn. (laughs) Richard, looking at the things in the shop, has a quick existential crisis. 
before starting home towards Clarissa, feeling like he wants to bring her something. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he decides to buy a vast bouquet of red and white roses. Oh. He feels his life and marriage to Clarissa are miracles um, after the war. Okay. He's like, in light of the war, they're miracles. He thinks about social reforms when he passes a woman stretched out on the ground who um, laughs at the sight of him when he passes. And he's like holding his bouquet like a weapon to protect himself from her. And he thinks about how female vagrants are like a problem that needs to be solved. Um, at home, Clarissa is pissed because her annoying and frumpy cousin Ellie Henderson is coming to the party and she was hoping that she wouldn't. <laughs> you're one of those people that you invite and you're like, they better say no. No, because I just don't invite them. It's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> anyway, she's also pissed because Elizabeth is currently in like another room praying with Miss Kilman. Okay. And she wasn't invited like to lunch. Bitch. Yeah, she's so she's, you know, she's And Peter came by and cried drunk. and he's just like, I just want to fix my fucking dress. I'm just I've had it. <laughs> I'm gay. Out and with I've all had of you. <laughs> Richard enters. He is emotionally constipated and cannot tell Clarissa <laughs> that he loves her like he intended to. Instead, they talk a little bit about other stuff and he holds her hand. Did he give her the flowers? He, he did at least? his best. Yeah, he gave her the flowers. Um, which she likes. Richard leaves for a meeting and sets Clarissa up for a rest on the sofa. She's had a big day. It's hard being rich. Yeah. Clarissa is in a bit of shitty mood, though, because um, both Peter and Richard have obliquely criticized her for liking parties. <laughs> yeah. Like, it makes her shallow. So she's, like, just chewing on that a little bit. She's like, these fucking assholes. Um, and she decides that she throws parties simply because she loves life. And her parties are, like, an offering... Of, you know, life to be lived to the people around her. You know, it's like, come, just be alive. Have fun. Yeah, let's party. Let's drink, s- drink some, like, expensive wine. Let's do some stop. coke off each other, whatever. Yeah, like, life. <laughs> no day but today, you know. <laughs> you guys want to do some ketamine? Let's do it. Elizabeth now enters the room where her mother rests. While Miss Kilman waits outside on the landing wearing a Macintosh coat. Which I feel like Wolf specifies because it's ugly. <laughs> she always like, and her Macintosh coat. I'm like, do you think Macintosh coats are ugly? I don't know what a Macintosh up. coat I'm looks look like. Because now I just, I, I just want to see. So she's poor and she feels Clarissa is condescending. Uh, it doesn't have the right to be because Clarissa is foolish and shallow. Oh, she's like, how dare you talk down to me? A little bit. And Clarissa is just like, I'm just trying to be nice. Because <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> Miss Kilman has the conviction, has this conviction that she's been cheated out of happiness somehow. Um, She was a victim of anti-German discrimination during the war due to her German ancestry Mm. and also to the sympathetic attitude she displayed towards the German. She was like, man, you guys are discriminating me because because I'm German. And we're like, no, it's because you say the Germans should kill English people and win. Yeah. Just she, she should wait another like 20 years or so. Yeah, just you wait, Mrs. Kilman. Just you wait. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah apparently because of this she was fired from the school where she taught before she became religious two years and three months ago not sure why um, but now she feels she does not envy women like Clarissa but merely pities them oh, although really? she obviously she obviously does really? much like Peter is not in love with Clarissa anymore when Clarissa gets up to greet Miss Kilman Miss Kilman wishes to fell her like a tree she wants to just cut her down a peg which is especially uh, sinister because, as you remember, that's how Clarissa's sister um, straight sister up died. died. Yeah. yeah. She wants to make Clarissa cry. <laughs> that's how she feels. Clarissa is shocked by the hateful look Mrs. Kilman's, uh, in Mrs. Kilman's eyes. 
Like, man, she looks like she wants to make me cry. Yes, <laughs> you want to you make, make me cry? <laughs> Are you trying to cut me down like a tree? On my <laughs> dead sister? <laughs> oh, oh my god. That's what I'm getting. That's the energy I'm getting. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's just me, but... um. <sighs> She's again horrified at the idea that Miss Kilman may have stolen Elizabeth from her in some way. After a moment, Miss Kilman's threat seems to shrink for Clarissa, though. Clarissa laughs and says goodbye. So she's like, oh, what am I? Crazy. <laughs> she doesn't want to make me cry. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. She calls out to remember her party. Once again. No one wants to when go to your goddamn gone, party, Clarissa. <laughs> when they are gone, Clarissa thinks that love and religion are the cruelest things in the world. She reflects on. Clarissa watches an old woman in the house opposite hers climb the stairs. So she's like looking through her window into the other person's house. So this old woman's climbing the stairs and looking out her own window, unaware that anyone's watching her. Clarissa often watches her do this and feels it means something good, which she thinks is the possibility of like true privacy. She does not think Miss Kilman's religion or Peter Walsh's continual being in love. I'm doing air quotes solves the mystery of the human soul and something about the way she has her own room and then the old woman has hers is closer to the answer of like what it means to be fucking human i don't know she's she's deep we switch to miss kilman walking with elizabeth she thinks clarissa laughed at her oh god because she's ugly <laughs> she sounds struggles like a her to problem contr- yeah she struggles to control her desire to resemble clarissa and prays to god to help her through it She's just really bitter. She's just being bitter all over the place. All she lives for, besides Elizabeth, is food, tea, and a hot water bottle at night. That's you. Um, but she's bitter about it, and I oh. am stoked. Yeah, you love yeah. your hot water bottle and your food and love your tea. It. Mm-hmm. And your, like, little lesbian, like, student. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that is. So, yeah, she's like, Miss Kilman thinks it's unjust that she must suffer while Clarissa has no hardships <laughs> at all. So they, so Elizabeth's walking her, I think, home. I'm not really sure. They're just going, they're going on an outing together in a way. They stop by the army disposal stores. Well, it's the army and navy stores. I'm assuming it's like a disposal where Miss Kilman buys a petticoat. Elizabeth guides her around the aisles like an unwieldy battleship. (laughs) They have tea and Miss Kilman eats greedily, um, feeling resentment when a child next to them eats a pink cake that she wanted. (laughs) She just like. She just takes it from the child. I wanted that. Was it the last one? Did they were they out of stock after, or she just couldn't afford that pink cake? She couldn't afford it. Not sure. Oh my goodness! Let the child have his goddamn cake. He's probably gonna die of like diphtheria or something. Just let him have it. Yeah. (laughs) True. Polio. Polio was nineteen. Miss Kilman is like sermon. You know, delivers a sermon to Elizabeth about the plight of the poor. Elizabeth's a little bummed. Her mother and Miss Kilman don't get along, though she is aware that her mother is kind of making an effort to be polite. You know, on Elizabeth's behalf. When Clarissa offered Miss Kilman flowers sent from Burton, Miss Kilman squashed them uh, in a bunch. Like Elizabeth obviously respects Miss Kilman's knowledge and morals, but her obvious self pity is becoming like annoying and a little bit embarrassing. So she's like looking for an opportunity to ditch her. Miss Kilman seems to sense this to an extent and is desperate to keep Elizabeth at the table with her, but eventually Elizabeth leaves. Miss Kilman goes to Westminster Abbey and prays. Yeah, sure. Good riddance. Elizabeth gets on an omnibus to the Strand. Omnibus, I think, is like the two double-decker, like, red bus. Oh. I think that's what it is. 
Yeah, she goes to the Strand. I think it's like a business district. The Strand, the most expensive place in Monopoly. If you live in London, let us know. She rides on her way through a busy working class neighborhood that her family never visits. She never goes there, but it's like inspiring to her. And she thinks, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll be a doctor or a farmer. I think I'd rather be a farmer. And she she you know she thinks of how she would always rather be in the country with her father and the dogs. She loves her dog. Yeah. Are we gonna get to her goddamn party soon? Yeah. It's only twelve um, bong though. <laughs> So she's like either going to be a doctor or a farmer or go into parliament. She recognizes though that she's lazy and she feels like these ideas are a bit silly. So she's not going to say anything to anybody about it. She's just going to enjoy the, the thinking about it. Elizabeth knows her mother will want her at home to start getting ready for the party. So she starts heading back. We're back with Septimus now who is watching sunlight play on the wallpaper from the couch. He thinks about the line from the Shakespeare play Cymbeline. Fear no more. That stuff. Just because he's cultured. It's just another one of those connections between Septimus and Clarissa. Retzia sees him smile, but she's still a little bit freaked by it. She, lately, he often speaks nonsense or has visions. He thinks he's drowned or he's falling into flames. That's so scary. Like, he could just yeah. kill you at any time. Yeah. She feels like they no longer have a marriage, oh. which is sad. But anyway, she sits nearby him and she's making a hat for Mrs. Peters, who's the married daughter of their neighbor, Mrs. Filner. Retzia talks about it, and Septimus begins to look around him. He says that the hat's too small for Mrs. Peters, and speaks in a lucid way for the first time in weeks. Whoa. He even makes a joke about Mrs. Peters having a big head, Whoa. making Retzia laugh. Kill him. Retzia's, yeah, Retzia's filled with joy and love. It's like when they were first married. Septimus, who has a good eye for colour, begins pitching in with designing the floral motif for the hat. Oh, oh here he is. Designers. Yeah. He's like putting flowers and feathers together. Tim Gunn is back. Yeah. When he's finished, Retzia stitches it all together. Septimus is content. He feels he is in a warm place, such as on the edge of the woods. Oh no, he's gonna he's... fucking die. Right. He's proud of his work on Mrs. Peters's hat. We learn that in the future, Retzia will always lack that hat. Oh. Which they made when Septimus was himself. Oh, so no. I assume she sees Mrs. Peters. Uh, who is it? Mrs. Peters, yeah, wearing it. And she remembers that time with Septimus. Oh. Retzia worries when she hears a tap at the door. Oh no. She thinks it might be Sir William um, come to take Septimus away, but it's only the young girl who brings them the evening paper. Retzia kisses the child, gets out a bag of sweets, and they dance around the room and have a bit of fun. Retzia builds the moment up until it's something wonderful. Septimus reads the paper and grows tired. He feels happy. As he begins to fall asleep, though, the laughing voices sound like cries. Oh god. Septimus wakes up terrified. Retzia has gone to bring the child back to her mother, but he gets overwhelmed by the feeling that he's going to be alone forever. He's doomed to be alone. Um, around him, the ordinary objects like the coal shuttle and bananas on the sideboard, they're no longer beautiful. He calls out for Evans, oh. um, his dead friend, but receives no answer. Retzia returns and begins making an adjustment to Mrs. Peters's hat. She doesn't sense the change and she still feels like she can speak openly with him. Um, oh, yeah. And she talks about the first time she saw him, um, she thought he looked like a young hawk. He's got, like, a big beaky nose, I think. Mm. The time for Sir William's message to arrive is nearing. Septimus asks why Sir William has the right to tell him what he must do. Retzia says it's because Septimus threatened to kill himself. Oh, remember when asks, you said you want to kill yourself and me as well? Um, that's why. <laughs> that's kind of why. Septimus asks for the papers on which he had Retzia write down his crazy theories and thoughts about beauty and death and all that stuff. And he tells Retzia to burn them all, presumably so Sir William can't get his hands on them. Oh 
Um, however, Retzia thinks some of what he wrote is very beautiful and she ties the papers with a piece of silk and puts them away. And she actually decides that she will go wherever Septimus goes and she tells him that. She's like, oh. she's going to come with him no matter what Sir William says. Oh. Septimus thinks she's a flowering tree and that she fears no one. He thinks she is a miracle. She hears voices downstairs and worries that Dr. Holmes is calling. She runs down to prevent the doctor from coming upstairs. Septimus sees a knife and thinks, no, it's a nice bread knife, better not. He goes up to the window instead. He thinks, oh, no. this is the doctor's idea of a tragedy, not his or Retzia, he thinks. He thinks, life was good. Oh no, here we go. An old man on a staircase across the way stares at him. Septimus hears Holmes at the door. He cries, I'll give it to you. And flings himself out the window onto the railings below, oh. which impale him. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, like Nathan's death and misfeet, misfits. Mm. He's like, oh. And you're, as soon as he was lucid, I'm like, he gone die. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Holmes sees what Septimus has done and calls him a coward. Hey, rude. He's straight up dead. <laughs> He's like, nice death, coward. <laughs> but Retzia, who's in shock, feels she understands what Septimus has done. Mm. Holmes gives her a glass of some sweet liquid that makes her sleepy. Oh, a roofie. Yeah. Um, Holmes does not think Retzia should see Septimus when the paramedics carry him away. She's like, he's like, don't, you don't need to see that. Since his body is quite mangled. Mm. Standing across from the British Museum, Peter Walsh hears the ambulance rush to pick up Septimus's body. He thinks ambulances are great. Oh my God. One of the triumphs of civilization. I was wondering, I was the like, amb- what's he going to say about ambulances? I was like, this guy has something to say about fucking everything. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Right, so he fucking likes ambulances. Good for yeah. him. Right. So he's walking to his hotel. He thinks he's thinking about Clarissa again. Oh, surprise. He I'm not remembers writing <laughs> He remembers riding the omnibus with her um, in their youth exploring the city. Clarissa had a theory that to know somebody you had to seek out the people and places that completed them. She felt that people spread far beyond their own selves and might even survive in this way after death, in the people that they loved and in the places that they loved. Clarissa has influenced Peter more than anybody else he knows, he reflects. At the hotel, he thinks about how they used to walk in the woods, argue, obviously, and uh, discuss poetry, people, politics. He thinks of her as being a radical in those days. Not anymore. At the hotel, Peter receives a letter from Clarissa saying it was, it was only says that it was, quote, heavenly to see him that morning. And that's all. He's upset by the letter, which seems like a nudge in the ribs after his vivid memories of Clarissa. And he's like, ugh, I'm living in a hotel. Like, <laughs> ugh, like crying in front of her. <laughs> Although he does, he does think, oh, she must have ri- sat down and written this immediately after I left for it to have arrived now. So he like imagines her weeping as she like, <laughs> the note. And... and she was just like, uh, sorry, heavenly, whatever, send it. <laughs> Peter looks at the snapshot he carries around of Daisy, his uh, fiance, mm-hmm. um, with a fox terrier on her knee. She's hot, you know. Peter shaves, dresses for dinner. He wonders um, whether his marriage to Daisy would be good for her, as it would mean giving up her children to her husband and being judged by society on top of that. What? Why is she giving up her kids? She can't keep her kids? No, not if she divorces her husband. Does she not want her kids? I guess I think not. she wants her yeah, hot lover more. Yeah, fair enough. The idea of being faithful to her doesn't appeal very much. At the same time, he hates the idea of Daisy being with anyone else. <laughs> I hate this man. So, yeah, he sucks. He quickly disregards the age difference, significant, um, although not specified, between them. I'm guessing she's like, what, like 25 or something? Probably. Two kids? Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. 
and he decides that if he retires, he'll be a writer. Mm. That's nice. It's nice for him. At dinner, the other hotel guests uh, find him appealing and respectable. And he decides to go to Clarissa's party after all to find out what the conservatives are doing in India and hear all the gossip of the political stuff and high society. But he doesn't like, care. Why not? Don't worry, he doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't care about care. her. He's just going, you know, whatever. to hear about India. Yeah. I, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> Hopefully he'll see an ambulance. It'll be so fun for mm. him. So as he sets off for Clarissa's, he feels he's about to have an experience. He's like, tonight's the night. Don't know what for, but it's something. He like puts aftershave on his balls when he's like, get ready, boys. <laughs> <laughs> that would sting. He looks, <laughs> so he looks at me, yeah. And this is gross, but it would taste bad as well, right? So. The aftershave. Yeah. Do you think balls taste good with that aftershave? No, but they don't taste better with it. Well, at least maybe you'll get drunk on the aftershave. He'll... I so, feel like you won't. <laughs> uh, I feel like you haven't sucked enough aftershave balls. I'm I'm not claiming to be the bowl sucking expert. No, nor am I. <laughs> she says shakily. <laughs> okay, so he's like he's on his way. He's looking in people's lighted windows. He enjoys the richness of life. He's just vibing. <laughs> vibing. He's at Clarissa's. So he gets to Clarissa's house, um, and he steals himself, opening the blade of his uh, pocket oh, knife, yep. butterfly knife. <laughs> which he does when he's nervous um, and he enters the party so we're finally at the party that is such a the- like scary nervous tick to have imagine like <laughs> like a man just standing there like playing with like opening and closing a, a pocket knife it's just like you're nervous I'm even more nervous yeah so the servants are rushing around making last minute party decisions apparently the prime minister's coming that's something new that we've learned Dinner's over now, and the female guests go upstairs, and the men are called to the kitchen for Imperial Tokay, which is a sweet dessert wine for men only, apparently. What are women doing up there? Like, Coke? What's, what's happening? I don't know. <laughs> Each other. <laughs> Where's uh, mo- More people arrive, and the men join the women upstairs. Clarissa keeps saying, how delightful to see you, to everybody, which Peter finds phony and wishes he had stayed at the hotel. What is she meant to say? How not delightful it is to see you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my or like, party. Go through like a list of different ways to say the exact same thing. How okay it is I to see know. you. She's she's worried her party's going to be a failure because she's, I don't know, anxious. She's aware of Peter's critical eye, but she thinks she would rather be drenched in fire while attempting to make her party a success than fade like her meek cousin, Ellie Henderson, who she hated and wished wouldn't come. She's like, at least I'm not Ellie. The wind blows a curtain and Clarissa sees a guest beat it back and go on talking. <laughs> and then this prompts her to think, maybe my party's going to be a success after all. <laughs> I don't really know why. She just feels that way. People have a lot of feelings in this book. Yeah, too much. <laughs> like, you have too much guests, time to feel all these things. Guests continue to arrive, but Clarissa does not enjoy herself. She feels like anyone could take a role as hostess. But on the other hand, she's also a little bit proud of her party's success. The hired butler, Mr. Wilkins, they don't have a butler. They just hired one for the night. I assume from when you said hired butler. Announces <laughs> Lady Rossiter, who turns out to be Sally Seaton, now married. Oh, no. So, well, I mean, Clarissa is too. But, you know. I know, but you know. Yeah. It's still, yeah, it's still like a... <laughs> what a bummer, dude. Yeah, everyone had to be. Sally heard about the party through a mutual friend and invited herself because she wanted to see Clarissa again. Everyone just sold out. Clarissa remembers the moment in her youth when she was thrilled merely to think of being under the same roof with Sally. 
She looks at Sally, who's much older now, and she thinks he's lo- she's lost her luster to some extent. But they laugh and embrace and seem ecstatic to see, see one another. They're just happy. Happy to see each other. With her old bravado and egotism, Sally says she has five enormous boys. <laughs> <laughs> so she has five grown-up sons. Yikes. <laughs> the Prime Minister arrives. Oh, here he is. Interrupting Clarissa's reunion with Sally. Um, and he does his rounds and retires to a little room with Lady Bruton. Peter Walsh catches sight of Hugh Whitbread and occupies himself for a while by thinking about how much Hugh sucks. <laughs> he watches... Hugh's just like, man, everything's just so neat. You ever think about how things are just neat? <laughs> I love life and everyone around him is just like, fuck you, Hugh. He's just like, hey guys, you wanna... <laughs> he watches Clarissa, Peter watches Clarissa in her silver green mermaid's dress and feels she still has the power to sum up all of life in a moment merely by passing by and catching her scarf in some woman's dress. And he observes her laughing and like detangling herself, which is just a lovely, very human moment. And then Peter reminds himself that he's not in love with her. (laughs) By the by. I don't love her. (laughs) Clarissa sees the prime minister off and thinks she does not feel particularly passionate about seeing anyone. She prefers the intense hatred inspired by Miss Kilman, since the emotion is so heartfelt and real. She returns to the party and mingles with her guests, all of whom seem to have failed in their lives in some way. You know, as we all have. Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry in about some it. Way. Sally eventually catches Clarissa by the arm, but Clarissa is busy and says she will come back later, meaning that she will talk to her old friends when the others have gone. Everyone's... Maybe she's like, I don't want to cry at my own party. Just hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's thoughts dip constantly into the past. Clarissa must speak to the Bradshaws. Carrie and She'd- Mr. Big. Sir William. Oh, oh. And Lady. She dislikes Sir William, but tolerates Lady Bradshaw, who mentions a boy, uh, one of one of uh, Sir William's patients, who uh, committed suicide today. Why are you telling me this? It shocks Clarissa. That's what Clarissa's like. She's like, why did you say that? <laughs> it throws her off, like, her... <laughs> her rhythm. Her rhythm, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> throws her to the point where she has to go into the little room where the prime minister sat so she can be alone because she can't like she's like reeling she's like what the fuck and all at once she's angry with the bradshaws that they brought that they quote brought death into her party but then she thinks about septimus's death as a kind of attempt at communication so she she empathizes with him even though she doesn't know him and she feels a connection to him and she remembers the moment she felt she could die at burton um in total happiness that moment when she was walking down the stairs she considers the young man's death to be her own disgrace somehow. She, I don't know. She just feels connected. You know what to this it. book is? Everyone makes everything about themselves, even though <laughs> yeah. nothing is about them. But also, I think everyone does do that, like in real life, in real life too. I know. I don't. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> don't remind me of my faults, Virginia. Anyway, Clarissa looks out the window and sees that old woman and woman in the house across the way going to bed, and their eyes meet. She hears the party behind her and thinks of the words from Shakespeare's play, Cymbeline, fear no more the heat of the sun. She identifies with Septimus and she feels glad for him. She's like, good for you, man. You did it. <laughs> good for you. My teacher in year 10. Wait, did, is that where we were learning... is, wait, did the book end there or are you going off a tangent? Sorry, I'm going on a little bit of a okay, tangent. Okay, good. I thought done. that was like where it ended. <laughs> no. Um, I had a teacher in year 10 who was like, he was teaching us Hamlet and then he was like... <laughs> And then Hamlet does what all of us have done or will do at some point in our lives. Dies. Contemplate suicide. Oh. And I was like, 
13 and I was like never contemplated suicide and I was like what sir was he hot I he would have been when he was young but he was quite old I could work with him but um (laughs) sounds like he had problems it does it did and I was scared so she feels glad for Septimus she thinks about him and she's like he's at peace now he doesn't need to fear the heat of the sun anymore or whatever the winter's ravages or whatever Shakespeare said Mm. She returns to the party where Peter and Sally are gossiping about the past and present and wondering where she is. Sally goes to say goodnight to Richard. Peter's heart stops when Clarissa appears. Oh no. I will come, said Peter, but he sat on for a moment. What is this terror? What is this ecstasy, he thought to himself. What is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said. For there she was. And that. But he doesn't love her, remember? Of the story. No, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not. He doesn't love her. That was the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Of her, of him just seeing her and going, oh, it's Clarissa. Yeah. God damn it. This is one of those books that people pick apart to the tiniest little piece. Like every little sentence and what it means and what the characters mean and, you know, because they're li- they're you know they lie to themselves and they lie to each other and then they and then they realize truths and then they come across they come upon you know flashes of insight. Why do you and think so it it's... ends where it ends? Like, what is the relevance of that? Why does it just end with Peter going? Oh, there she was. There she. There she. Is. There she is. I don't love her, but there she is. <laughs> I think it's a moment where he actually realizes. And acknowledges his feelings. Because he's like, why am I excited? And why am I scared? Because Clarissa's here. And that's like one of the first times, one of the only times he's actually honest with himself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just people kind of coming to terms with how old they are. (laughs) A lot of it. And the world that they live in, like the empire, the, the way it's sort of crumbling in a lot of ways. The changes, you know, in their own lives and in the world around them, I guess. Trying to think if there's a happy ending mm. for anyone. Maybe that small child that got some lollies when she <laughs> delivered the night paper. Yeah. I guess I think the idea is that there is no ending. It's still happening. It's anyone. just going. It's there's past and present and they're all happening at the same time in a way. And and they and that's what connects us, you know. And and everyone's connected, you know, in the in the huge city, like this there's this sort of quite a, that invisible string that the mm. Taylor Swift was talking about and Lady Broughton. Um, <laughs> and there's that no sort one, of connects people. There's no like three act structure either. There's no, there's not really. A, not really. It's it's really if it really flows. It's um, literally just in and a out game. of yeah, yeah. Twenty four bong. <laughs> Stop that. My hair is getting <laughs> caught under my cozy phone. Oh no, your turf bangs. Leave me alone. Leave me and my problematic views alone. <laughs> JK Rowling. I'm not a turf, by the way. I just want to state that for the record. Um, it's a lot of ISO haircuts, man. Yeah, it's we're, we're all doing our best. <laughs> 